He's Danny O'Neill. I'm Christian Capel. Play it. Play the clip. Pod. 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 Still laughing? It's still funny. <laughs> I got a little more. I got a little more audio editing for you a little bit later in this episode. Oh yes, yeah. It is, what a special episode it is. End of spring. End of spring football. Is that why it's special? Well, that's always special. It's it's episode fifty. 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 Episode L. For those who are into Roman numerals. Who's into Roman numerals besides the NFL and its Super Bowls? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know that I I see it regularly. I thought Super Bowl XL was cool. Yeah. Like when the Seahawks were in XL. And that was the point. Like after that, all of the L, like LV, like when it was LV3 or whatever they're on now, like it started looking like luggage to me. And maybe that's because I'm a little too Deion Sanders like oriented around luggage because he talks about his Louis. I got my luggage coming in. It's Louis. Apparently, oh, half man. his team's in the transfer portal now. He uh, he's going to spend some time at baggage claim. My goodness, there's. I, I hope uh, I hope he got some sort of like discount first check bag free or something because there's a lot coming. A lot that's going. that's probably good for him though, right? Like overall at Colorado. I would think that the the athlete he's going to attract that is going to come there because of him, like he might as well start fresh there compared to the the, the recruits that they had already in place. Am I wrong about that? Uh, not necessarily. Assuming they can fill out the roster, yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah. The thing it, it's it's kind of amazing because I think, man, you know, they're down to what. 18 returning scholarship guy. I mean, I haven't checked Twitter in the last three minutes, so that number might not be up to date. It certainly won't be up to date by the time this publishes because so many guys are being told to leave. Um, and maybe some of them are choosing to, I don't know, but the athletic had a story today that made pretty clear that, uh, these were, these were coach recommendation. Oh, dude, he told him to hit the bricks. Yeah. I mean, of course. And that's every coach does that, you know, to, to a certain extent. Is that right? When a coach does that, I mean, every coach does do it to a certain extent. I don't want to say, should a coach do that? Should should a coach, and I guess maybe it's the difference between, I think it's fair for a coach to tell a player, I don't see you getting on the field. I think it's wrong for a coach to try and push a player to leave. Like, if the player is cool with not playing and wants to stay there in school and is willing to continue to work and be part of the team, I think it's lame when guys run, when they actually run a player off. Yeah, I mean, that's the old school way. Of running the guy off. Hey, just so you know, you're never ever going to play here. Yeah, I've heard of guys, you know, tell tell kids you'll never you'll never even be on the travel squad. You know, we're going with other guys. You're not going to get any reps. So, you know, if, if you if your goal is to play college football in any capacity, you should you should leave. I think that part's fair. I don't threaten them to never be on the travel squad. That's that's bogus behavior. I think it's fair to tell a kid that. I, I think that's where it has to stop, though. I, I, I really don't think a coach should should go to the extent of, I'm really going to actively try to make you leave beyond saying you're not going to play. I mean, the the argument in favor would be college football is big business. And 
you know, there's all this money at stake and entire coaching staffs could get fired year to year if the results aren't where they're supposed to be. And, but then the counter to that is, yeah, it's, it's big business for like everyone except the players. A hundred percent. When you're insisting they're not employees, you can't treat them like employees. So, and, you know, NIL is the, is the ca- counter to that, but it's not like that's equitable and, and no one, you know, presumably a head coach might not even know and especially Colorado like who at Colorado is making money yet (laughs) okay I promise this isn't going to be a Deion Sanders thing and this is going to be my last like observation about Deion Sanders I think it's fascinating what he's going to I expect him to turn Colorado football into reality TV he's had a partnership with Barstool Sports in the past he has cameras everywhere like, we've already seen footage from meeting rooms. Should the players be compensated for appearing in those? Hmm. That's a good question. Yeah, that's... uh. Does HBO compensate the NFL teams or players that it highlights on Hard Knocks? I don't think they get money. They're, so, also, empl- they're also employees kind of the same idea right no i don't think it is because that was my initial reaction or to but say like but their employer made a decision yep presumably without consulting them correct or without, without care for what hey like we're doing hard knocks hard knocks is coming we're going to be the team this year um, yes doesn't matter so i don't know does it matter that that they're employees shouldn't they be compensated I think it, too i think it does matter and here's here would be the difference that i would say is that if I work for someone, sure, my, my job's laid out to, to a certain extent. And even when I was in a union, there are restrictions that are placed on the job, but like I have job responsibilities there. My, my boss can add or subtract to those. Mm-hmm. But I have a working agreement with them. If you're a, a football player at Colorado and you're getting a scholarship it's different to me because you're actually not being treated as an employee. Like you don't have a seat at the table to decide, okay, where are cameras allowed? Where are they not? You don't, you're not, you're not really, it's not, it's not a job. And I, I, I actually, I kind of think it's wrong if the, if the coach is getting something out of it and the, the athlete just gets the choice. I, I guess I kind of see it like the the shoe deals. Like it would it be different than a shoe deal in forever like basketball coaches have got the money that went to their program and that was a huge source of revenue for the basketball coaches. I think with NIL that's completely on the way out though. Right? Like that that is moving in the direction that I, I think if it's not already happening it will be where players players are able to monetize that part of it. I think it should be the same with media and that's really what Deion Sanders is doing anyway I it's not a fully formed I just I I believe that Deion Sanders is going to make Colorado football into reality television and if that's the case I think the players should be compensated I could see a player who kind of becomes like the star of the show you know like every year with hard knocks there's a there's a guy or two who just pops on TV and they keep going back to him right yes I could see a guy or two stepping into that role and you know does all the behind the scenes stuff and the production. I mean, it, it, 
it airs on YouTube, right? That's, yes. that's kind of where it lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see a guy or two, you know, maybe being becoming really popular or kind of like a a TV star behind the scenes with some of the stuff they do and and saying, hey, like you know, people are watching that you're benefiting yep. from my from my name, image, and likeness here. Yes, you know, maybe maybe uh maybe cut the check. So yeah, we'll see. I'm I'm much more interested to see like how many guys are going to be on their team this year. <laughs> Because I, I was saying, like, on the one hand, they've lost so many that it's like, wow, how could they possibly replace that many through the portal? But on the other hand, you got to think that they're not telling this many guys to go if they don't already have a sense for who they're going to add. Because that's how the portal works, right? Yep. Like, you don't just you don't just open the portal on Monday morning and be like, all right, who's in here? You know, who's who decided they want to try? Like, you know, you you know you know who's jumping in the portal and if you if if you see a name pop in and that's the first you're seeing it then guess what he's not coming to your school so i got to think that there's some guys lined up that would be my assumption i would guess that the issues they might run into or will run into will be on the lines right cuz oh, yeah. that's that's sort of the the salt of the earth that's where like longevity and you have to work your way into it i i don't I'm not sure how many starting caliber offensive linemen are are like hitting up the portal of like, oh, I'd like to go and see what Deion Sanders is doing. Like the the big wide receiver was it Lamonius Craig, mm-hmm. who had a big spring game, and then everybody's like, oh, but guess what? He's in the portal. I'm sure that they have skill players and cornerbacks out the out the wazoo. Not out wazoo. I shouldn't say that. Uh, overflowing. Of they're going to upgrade talent there. I, I'd be curious of what happens in the trenches where people do stuff that uh, we don't talk about at parties. Yeah, the uh, the big time O line and D line transfers are, are looking to land at a a big power program where they can they can win and they can you know show what they got to to burnish their draft stock. I just saw USC just landed a, an O lineman from Wyoming, and that like that's that's what mostly what you see from. O-line transfers, mm-hmm. right, is is guys who, because O-line is, I think other than quarterback, it's the most difficult position to to project from high school to, to college. I mean, there's some guys where, you know, they're a little oh, lighter. Interesting. You don't think they can put the weight on. Yeah. And so they end up at Wyoming or Rhode Island or, you know, uh, Stanford took a, uh, an O-lineman from Penn, I think, and maybe one from Harvard. And so some of these guys end up at smaller schools, develop, end up that, oh, wow, this guy's a really good offensive lineman. And then by year three, four, five, oh, I could go in the portal and get some money because I play a premium position. I'm better than what people thought I was going to be coming mm-hmm. out of high school. I think you see a lot of that in the portal with O-linemen. You don't see a lot of guys leaving like power five to power five. And, and I think that it, it's primarily because five guys get to play at a time. You know going into it that, Okay, I play a position where I just there's very little reason for me to think I'm going to be on the field as a true freshman, and it's going to mm-hmm. take a lot for me to be on the field in year two. Year three, for most guys, is when you start to think about like, okay, are they developed physically enough to play? And so I just think there's there's a mindset there that the instant gratification just is not realistic. So I, I, that's why I think you see less alignment in the portal. But yeah, I mean that's I, on the O line and D line, that's going to be. And I don't know how you rebuild through the portal. I mean, unless, you know, maybe Dion's Dion must know some things we don't. Certainly he does. But uh, unless he's got a, a whole legion of those big dudes coming, 
I'd be uh, I'd be concerned for the the well being of their their quarterback and running back next year because yeah it but that shoot you should have been concerned for him anyway watching him play last season going one yeah. eleven. I mean, yeah, they 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 were they were in over their head. All I right, will say like re- reading the athletic just real quick, reading the athletic story today, it seemed like the meetings with with Dion were handled like as well as you can handle it. Telling a kid like you have to leave and you're not playing here anymore, you know, mm-hmm. doesn't sound like he demeaned them or you know just told them hey get out. But it does sound like maybe the way that the prior players were treated by the coaching staff relative to players who were new to the program this spring was. Maybe not quite the same, so. Dion, I, I think Dion's arrival is good for the conference. I'm excited to see what they do. Dion is about Dion. And I think that that's been very, very transparent throughout most of his career and certainly transparent about his coaching stops. And you could make the argument that he just doesn't hide it as well as other coaches do, that there are other coaches who are selfish and, and maybe to a certain extent, the actual process of being a college football is inherently selfish. I, I don't think that's necessarily true, but, but Dion's pretty upfront about that. But it does, <laughs> it just shines, it shines a spotlight on the contradiction that's there of college coaches talking about being in the role of like ethical, like helping for men. And then the reality of self-interest that guides the actions of so many of them. And Dion kind of just doesn't even make the pretense about the, <laughs> like It's just he's, he's taking a more professional approach to what is technically an amateur occupation. And it just, I don't know. It's, it's always going to sit a little odd with me that Dion is so transparently about Dion. You know... If you're trying to teach some life lessons and mold men, uh, <laughs> telling a kid to get lost <laughs> early in life, <laughs> that's a lesson, right? Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's not one I would want to learn. But yeah. It is, uh, I guess, I guess that's the, I'm, I'm being shown to be the beta male. <laughs> like, I just don't want him to hurt those, that kid's feelings. You're like, hey, it's a sharp cornered world out here. Buckle up, buttercup. Yeah, it sucks. I mean, that's just, it's, it's no fun, you know, when you found, especially when you got to leave Boulder. I know. That's a pretty fun place to leave. Yeah. It, it's Division One football. <laughs> well, see, here's the beauty of the, you know, they are required. Like, if, if a kid was just like, if you're not going to let me play football, fine. I'm not leaving. And you have to pay for my school for four years. They could, Danny, go and play intramurals. <laughs> Go play intramurals, brother. They could get paid to play intramurals. They could. They could get their school paid for and go play intramurals. Has anybody stayed? Has anybody really pushed that, though? Are there guys who stay on scholarship and like, fine, you can kick me off the team, but you're still paying for my school? I want to say a couple guys at USC might have taken that route when Lincoln Riley came in and did the the great roster turnover last year. That's like that. It's kind of the funny thing. Like USC just did this. Like just did this. That is so wild. That part is like, can you imagine the guys that USC recruited and somebody comes in there and is like, yeah, this guy's just not talented enough. Like, are you high? Are you serious? Well, it's like, like what Chris Peterson said on Fox talking about USC during, I think it might have been before they hired Lincoln Riley, but that there's there's a difference between skill and talent and that they oh. USC had a lot of talented guys, but didn't have many skilled guys. 
Interesting. So I think talent is like the raw form coming out of high school. This guy's really talented. He's got a lot of great athletic yeah. traits. But yeah. then did you develop his skills once Dude, he got there? Yeah, it sucks that they have a competent coach. Like it's always been it's always been a blessing to the rest of the conference that that program for the most part of the last 30 35 years has been steered by by morons. It's really been a benefit to the rest of the conference cuz when you get a competent coach in there and Lincoln Riley certainly seems competent, Pete Carroll was very competent. God, that thing can just become a buzzsaw. Yeah, and I think they've upgraded further, you know, like last year it was it was amazing what they did with the roster last offseason yeah. in terms of of the number of impact transfers they added. And I think they you know, identified some pretty obvious weak spots last year defensively, like everywhere, um, and went out and, and addressed some of them in the portal. And I think I've added, what, two big transfer offensive linemen, or they, they just landed the big uh, Georgia D-tackle. Georgia, Georgia tackle, yeah. Those are those, man, that's as premium as it gets, right? Yep. A D-tackle from Georgia in the portal who, didn't he have, like, a tackle for loss or a sack or something in the national championship game? Like, you know, that's... you. Hey, we need to go get a D tackle. Well, how about this guy? You know, like I that's that's as good as it gets in the portal. It's possible that Georgia has twenty five NFL defenders on their roster. Yeah, yeah, I, legitimately possible that you're going to have twenty five guys that are going to play in the NFL on that on that defensive roster, just on the defensive side of the ball. Would they be disappointed if you told them up front it was only twenty five? <laughs> Dude, it's. Cr- I mean, I still. There are still parts of SEC football that I can't stand, but the the depth of talent that they have, especially on the defensive side of the ball, defensive line and and secondary is just wild. Like it's yeah. it, it's it's a different it's a different level of talent. It is. It's um, it is like they're playing a different sport, and like that's the big, you know, as as national championship goals kind of get. Toss. That's been a big talking point out out these parts the last you know couple weeks. It, it can it, is Washington cool with talking publicly about this being a goal and and all these sort of things. And man, when you talk about a team on the West Coast truly competing for a national title, like that's that's where the the gap is. Those those big dudes up front, those big yeah. athletic you know first, second, third round type uh, draft picks who can clog the middle and and wreak havoc because you just don't see a lot of them playing in the Pac-12. Yeah, you know what's... When Washington went to the championship game or went to the playoffs, when they went to the Peach Bowl, they had they had the talent up up front. N- not on the, the offensive line. line. They had the D-line, though. Like, they... Yeah. they Washington belonged in that game. If they were going to win that game or have a chance to really win that game, they needed a quarterback who was going to be able to offset... <laughs> the fact that there was an incredible defense on the other side, like you really, like that's what I came away with of, and it's not a shot at Jake Browning at all. I mean, it was, he was a sophomore that season. He did really well given everything that was there. But if you were going to beat a defense like that, you needed a quarterback that played like Deshaun Watson did like that really just comes in is like, okay, you guys are going to have an advantage of getting pressure and you're going to have an advantage of speed and I'm I'm just I'm good enough that I can I can counteract that. I'm good enough that I can deal with the edge your defense has up front. 
Um, but Washington belonged in that game. Like I, I really strongly felt that way that they belonged in that game. I believe all five of their offensive line starters played in the NFL too, but Trey Adams was a true sophomore playing left tackle. Nick Harris was a 270 pound true freshman playing right guard. (laughs) Caleb McGarry was in his third year. Yeah. Um, So that you had some talent, but it also was like in a, you know, in a a program like Alabama and a program like Georgia, those guys aren't playing. Yes. They're not even playing. They're, I think I think Trey Adams was first team all conference that that year as a true saw. Like obviously he was very good, very talented player, um, especially at that time before the injuries. But it it did just kind of highlight like yeah, there's there's some differences in the in the trenches uh, between these two programs. You think going into and this is jumping the gun a little bit. Do you think Washington will be the conference favorite going into the season, or do you think it'll be USC? I think it'll be USC. Yeah, um, with Caleb Williams coming back. Yeah. There's like, I was talking about this. I was on the radio the other day. What were you doing on the radio? Oh, uh, you know, just blabbing. <laughs> were you on with Bump and Stacy? Were you on with my Stacey. dudes in the afternoon, Bob and Dave? I, I was on with Bump and Stacy. I feel like this conversation was more, was it on a podcast or something? It might have been on with Mitch. Um, about like, the question is, is Washington good enough to win the Pac-12? The answer is, absolutely. Hell yeah. Yes. Of yes. course they are. Yeah. Um, but it's the same answer for Oregon, USC, <laughs> Utah, and probably Oregon State. Yeah, I'd throw the beeves in there too. So there's a tier. And then, you know, UCLA, if Dante Moore comes in and is like awesome, or if Colin Schley, the transfer from Kent State, gives them something at quarterback, they've got a good transfer running back. They might he's- say... Is there a sign that Chip Kelly's awake? Like and actually paying attention this offseason? I mean, I, last year he was for the first, you know, eight or nine weeks. They fell apart a little bit. But uh, I don't know if he can maintain his 12-month focus anymore. I don't know. They, they took a step forward last year, kind of, sort of. Got a new contract. UC, UCLA's in a weird... So it used to be in the... Even into the 90s, UCLA and USC had the most talent. Like, they were the most talented rosters, year in and year out in the conference. And, and I know why it happened, but UCLA's fallen off. And, and then watching sort of second iteration Chip Kelly, like, I can't help but feel he just doesn't care as much as he did when he was at Oregon. Like, he's kind of already been to the mountaintop. He's like, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to get back up there. I'm going to – I work in Westwood. Like, this is – he doesn't strike me as having the fire that he once did. I, I don't think he's measuring guys' urine like he used to. I don't think he's quite as studious. Like I think he's let some of his focus slip, and he's you think happy. There's been to... some some darkening of the urine. <laughs> was that was that a thing when he was at the Pac-10? Because that uh, was that was all anybody talked about the NFL. Like players that would have played for him specifically at Philadelphia. They're like, dude, that guy was obsessive about our pee. <laughs> I know that that's a bit, that's a big strength strength coach thing. That, yeah, like, and I think we've talked about this before, right? Where you see the. Sometimes the signs, like the graphs circulate on social media where it's like, if your pee is not like straight, like clear, you're letting down the team. Yeah. Hydration's important, man. <laughs> Big hydration guy. We're going to knock him for being high on hydration. It's no, it's yeah. 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 Because the head coach of an NFL team should not be obsessed about whether or not the players are bringing in their urine samples in the morning. He should have a pee guy. Oh, he wanted samples. That was okay. yeah. Like he had him take it. Like, and there was like there would be you would be talked to if you weren't getting stuff back. And he was 
like it was made very clear to people that Chip Kelly was paying attention to that stuff. I was like, you got to delegate there, man. Like you got so much, <laughs> you can't be worried about pee. <laughs> yeah, that's that's one of those tasks you need to hand off to somebody else. I like Chip. It's weird to me that they rely so extensively on transfers, though. It's kind of like he doesn't want to recruit anymore. Yeah, I mean, it, and I think we've we mentioned this before too. But do you think his time in the NFL made him more inclined to to? want to be around older guys who kind of know what it looks like and spend less time sort of on the the onboarding process i think it's i think it's the latter in the portal you're you might be more likely to be dealing with an agent (laughs) 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 more like the pro world dude dude is that happening i guess i never thought of that oh yeah i mean you guys have agents and they but they're marketing guys so do do the does the agent talk to a coach i mean that's not supposed to happen and it might not be it might not be like during the actual recruiting process. Yeah. Um, but you know, th- these guys get contacted through intermediaries somehow. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Either they have representation and it's through representation or it's the high school coach or the seven on seven coach or the trainer or mom or dad. I don't know. But, um, certainly I think once they're, once they've committed and decided like, this is where I'm going, like you, you really should have an agent negotiating with the collective. Yeah. And I think where you might see it more is with guys who are already on the roster. Yeah. Um, yeah. That makes some more representation sense. Right. saying yes. like, oh, hmm, this guy at the same position with the same experience level who like actually doesn't have as good a career numbers, like just got this from the school he transferred to. Like, you know, wonder if my guy should go in the portal. Come with it. <laughs> get, get, get a little CTC. something. something. <laughs> CTC. Cut that check. I just saw a clip of Rashid Wallace. I'm trying to think because it was hilarious. Oh, he was talking about how Lindsey Hunter, um, that they were going out one night and Lindsey Hunter was asked for an ID and he made Rashid Wallace show him his championship ring, which I came out and I was like, <laughs> holy crap, like Rashid Wallace just wears out his NBA championship ring some nights, which I was like, that's awesome. I love that. Did they let him in? They did. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Uh, all right, so Washington probably not the favorite, but in that in that top tier conversation, spring. I would guess they'll get second most votes. That'd be yeah, my prediction. that that makes sense. Um, actually, let's get to our question. Uh, it's worth a conversation. Ian McFarland, uh, the IP McFarland Company. If you've got if you've got a business idea or if you have a product that you're looking to take to market and you're looking for sales options, it's worth a conversation with Ian. Uh, you can find him, his website, IP McFarland, and each week he gives us something to talk about, just like you should call him if, if you've got a, something you want to talk about because everybody will be better off for the conversation. Here is Ian. Good morning, fellas. Christian, great job with the coverage on Onmont Lake of the entire spring and particularly the write-up of the spring game. Enjoyed it very much. Lots of discussion about the spring and I love the compass direction the team's pointing and everything is, is going upward. But part of the reason for that is that tonight's NFL draft will be absent University of Washington players. Everyone stayed around. But that means next year a lot of guys will be headed out and by my count I see six and even maybe seven that could go in the top three 
rounds of the NFL draft next year. So to call it right now, each of you give me your top five in order in which University of Washington players will be selected in the 2024 NFL draft. Keep up the great work. Talk to you soon. Go dogs. All right, Christian. So I'm not even sure if Kuiper has his big board yet <laughs> for 2024. He's maybe he's got a baby board, the big a board. Baby board. <laughs> he's got a little baby board, just a little baby board. Uh, I think there's, I I'm confident in who the first two will be. You could convince me either way on the order. I'll say, I'll say we're going to see Romo Dunze and Braylon Trice. Ooh as the first two guys from Washington off the board. Interesting. I'll guess so, that it'll be Odunze first. I would not be surprised if Trice jumped him. I mean, Joe Tryon was a first-round pick with, like, really hardly any college production. Trice is, I think, a a similar player. Um, Ikaika Malloy famously predicted he'd be better than Joe Tryon, and I, I kind of think it's trending that way, at least college-wise. I think Tryon's off to a pretty good start in the NFL. Um, and at, at edge rusher, I mean, if he blows up and has a double digit sack season, he's getting preseason all America recognition. If he's, you know, if he's a dude again with, with the numbers, um, I could see him getting in the first round conversation for sure. So I think those are the top two. I mean, gosh, I'm I'm trying to think of positional value. I'm going to go, I'm going to throw ZTF. I think ZTF is the first player off the board. See, he has that potential. Mm-hmm. He does, and he'll he'll get the opportunities this year. He'll be a starter. Um, I think that there's questions probably in the NFL scouting community about, okay, how where is he relative to that 2020 season? That yeah. explosion, that three game explosion, and can he recapture that? ZTF himself has talked about. You know, he knows that the book on him is that he's a pass rusher who doesn't play the run. And mm-hmm. so he's trying to shore that up. I think Trice is more well-rounded right now. But, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, a tall, long, athletic, you know, quick, explosive pass rusher who matches the the traits with, with his production this year, yeah, I could see both of those guys being in that conversation. I think ZTF is like, he, he's a little bit of a wild card, you know. If he if he puts up the numbers, if he keeps making progress, and he seems pretty determined that way, you know, I think he he wanted to come back for all the reasons that the other guys wanted to come back that are team related. But I think also knew that there was a lot he still could put on tape and improve. So, yeah, he's you know he's definitely in that conversation. This is a little bit of cheating on my part, but it was unrelated to the question. Um, I didn't I didn't I didn't do the research after we heard the question about a month ago. I'd reached out. I, I've had questions, and I think we've anybody who's listened to the podcast has, has has heard it, where I've had the question of, did I get too or we get too carried away with ZTF and the caliber of pass rush that he had? Because like going into last season, I would say I would have said like ZTF is is has the highest pro potential of any player on on this roster right now. I think he'll be drafted higher just because of the physical traits he had. He's obviously had to deal with coming back from a really, really significant injury. Um, so about a month ago, I'd reached out. To, I still have some guys that I talk to and know who, who do deal primarily in college scouting and, and to ask them about, about ZTF. And it was actually uh, 
particularly because I remember how amped up I was on Azim Victor and mm-hmm. thinking like he was going to be, and then all of a sudden BBK was playing in front of him and I'm like, what the hell is going on? And I talked later, like a couple of pro guys had said he's a really, really physically strong and talented player, but he doesn't, doesn't have a great first step. He's not always moving toward the ball in the way that BBK is. And so I kind of wondered if it was the same sort of thing of like, I assume this guy was a stud and it just didn't as, and, and the, and the scout was like, he's he's got all of the things you want as a pass rusher. And and that goes a long way in the NFL draft. So the coming away from that conversation, I was like, oh, they still see him as a pretty high-profile prospect. Like, he's not... The, the warts are there in terms of his ability to play the run and kind of understanding why he wasn't necessarily on the field more. Last season is there, but what he does well and sort of that the speed that he can bring off the edge is really, really valuable. And Trice is, I think Trice will end up being the better college player between the two, but I think it's very possible that ZTF ends up going before Trice does. So if I had to pick my order, I would say ZTF, Roma Dunze, Braylon Trice. And I think all three of those guys are going in the first three rounds. You've sold me on ZTF as, as uh, in that top three. I still think, I still think Trice is going to go ahead of him. And I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna say Rome Trice and then ZTF and then I, then I'm gonna say Michael Penix Jr. Yeah. Okay. We're we're um, very much I'm I'm right there with that. That's that's my number four is Penix as well. And that's so that's such a guess. And it's a guess for anybody, right? Because like quarter I feel like the quarterback stuff. I mean, it could go a million different directions. It's all about what do you what do you prioritize? What are you looking for? Um, do you need a starter right now? Is is he a starter right now in the NFL? Um, I, did you, so only a a sort of a tangent here. Did you see the athletic story about, um, top college quarterbacks returning to school rather than enter the draft and and the impact that NIL had on that? I didn't see that. I'd be interested. I I will be looking it up after it. What was the conclusion? Was that the NILs, you know, directly impacted those guys' decisions. Um, Uh what was most interesting who else who that. else came back? So Bo Nix. Okay. I'm gonna pull it up because there's a there's a list here. Um here it is. Kalen Collar wrote it. Uh there's a list here. This is the twenty twenty three class spring grades released last May and obtained by the Athletic. Rated eleven draft eligible senior quarterbacks with grades ranging from the fourth through seventh rounds who decided to forego the draft. Uh-huh. And this is Bo Nix. Phil uh, Jerkovic from Boston College, Ben Bryant from Cincinnati, Spencer Sanders from Oklahoma State, Devin Leary from NC State, Jaden Daniels from LSU, formerly of Arizona State, Brennan Armstrong from Virginia, Sam Hartman from Wake Forest, Keaton Slovis from Pittsburgh, uh, Talia Tagovailoa at Maryland, and Tyler Shuck at Texas Tech. Some of those guys returned to their current school. Some of those guys entered the portal. Some are still in the portal. Um, Michael Penix Jr. is not on that list. And this is this is a list of eleven draft eligible guys who were given grades between the fourth and seventh rounds who decided to come back to school, and he's not one of them. Does, does that surprise you? Yeah, it does. He's not mentioned in the story at all, which is really surprising to me, considering the some of the the chatter around the NIL money he's getting and the fact that he led the country in passing last year. I don't know what to make of that. 
that's the one thing that gives me hesitation is like, you know, did the, the feedback that he got dictate his decision to return more than anything else? Is there something about the next level that, yeah, is it just the injury stuff? Is there something about his game that would put all 11 of these guys on this list, but not him? The injury stuff is usually at other positions and usually related to like he like the guys that don't get drafted or see their draft stock plummet because of an injury kind of like Chris Polk or even like Miles Jack had happen like Jack still got drafted relatively high but it was like a full round later is because they're concerned about a chronic like a potentially arthritic knee like that or shoulder like those two things can be knees and shoulders can knock a guy where they're just like hey we don't even think he's going to finish his rookie contract or he might not finish his rookie contract and be able to to start his second it usually doesn't happen with quarterbacks that way and Penix, his durability has been a question but it's not like he's had an injury they'd be like oh w- yeah we're not going to touch that guy because we don't we don't think he's going to be healthy enough to like finish the four-year term of a rookie contract. I, I I legitimately don't know what to make of him not being on that list about whether it is a mistake that's reflective of sort of the, the information that he got left off it or the list that was provided is it's not as authoritative as it sounds. I mean, but that's, that is pretty jarring because what I would what I would guess that list is is everybody that applied for, to the advisory board for an estimated grade, and either his was higher or he wasn't told he would be drafted. Which, I mean, generally guys are told like if there's a question about whether or not you're going to be drafted, they're told like fourth through seventh or fifth through seventh. It's not like they're like, hey, kid, don't waste our time like that. <laughs> Usually they're like, oh, you might be a draft pick on the third day. So it looks like this was from the Na- National Football Scouting and Blesto. Yeah, that's um, that's NFL's. Were, that, that's their. That's the scouting service. Yeah, th- these were spring grades last May. So before before Penix's twenty twenty two season. Oh, oh, okay. So oh, that heat. Okay, I could see that because he just hadn't played enough. Really I thought it was from that this I, year. I thought it was from guys this year that had applied for that. So I'm less okay. I'm less freaked out by that of thinking that like oh, there's something because I think I think he's as good. I think he's right in that conversation of like if you gave if he got a draft grade, he would probably be told fourth to fifth round. Like that's that's what I think that that's where I think he would have gone this year. I'm not sure how much higher he's going to go next year, but. I still think he's going to be drafted and I maybe it'll be as high as a third. I don't think he's going to play his way to being a first round pick, but I really believe he's going to be drafted in a spot where teams look at him and said like, Hey, if, if we have to play him this year, if he's, we've got a starter and he's, and that starter gets injured and we go to Michael Penix that we feel okay about that, that he's going to be seen as, as that kind of a, 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 a long-term backup player with, Hey, maybe things pop for him and he does it. That that's kind of what I see for him. I uh I'm gonna go Troy Fautanu fifth. Yeah, we're the same there. I wanted to do Ulufoshio. And I, I think Fautanu's one who could you know, he could play his way into a, a higher consideration than that with a big season. I mean he's uh 
He plays he's the right a position. Dynamic athlete at, at left tackle. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. Um, Am I crazy to think Gulafoshio might get picked? No, I mean I I think his size is going to prevent him from getting picked. Yeah, that very high, and you know it's been. He's never played a full season. Yeah, you know, like he could have in 2019, but was behind a couple guys he was better than for most of the year, and then by the la- you know by the the last whatever it was half of the season or less than half of the season. It was like, Oh yeah, no, this is their best linebacker. Yeah. (laughs) There he is. Yeah. He's just been, he's a walk on red shirt freshman who everybody missed coming out of high school and has just been kind of biding his time on special teams. And then he was good in 2020 for four games. 21 seemed like he was banged up the whole season. Even when he was playing, he was hurt and then had the season ending injury took for, you know, it took him, he had had a knee injury that, the next winter after DeBoer got there, that wiped out most of his 22 season. So he's one where, you know, I, I think like if he has a monster year, that certainly that's going to get him, that's going to get him some looks. Um, he's one where I could really see the, the injury history and, and just mm-hmm. the, it's, it's strange because it's his sixth year and you've been hearing about him for so long, but he really has played relatively little football just because of the injuries um, for, kind of what his what his profile is when you think of you know think about him like he's this seasoned vet but as far as the next level goes I could see sort of that lack of tape hurting him but hey you know 13 14 games in in 2023 as a senior and and being a guy yeah I could I could see him get into the conversation I think that's my heart more than my head the other guy that I think that I I debated and probably like realistically has a better shot of getting drafted and could move up is Jalen McMillan yeah, he's so. I, he he would be my next pick after Fautanu. Am I? Am I? Am I nuts for thinking it's not a foregone conclusion he'd leave after this year? No, I, think, I don't think so. I think like Romo Dunze, he has very high expectations for. Um, he has he has goals for where he wants to go, you know, and so it, I think he's one where if the feedback is hey, we see you here, and it's well below kind of how how he always envisioned himself being drafted or the position where he always envisioned himself being drafted. I wouldn't. I don't think he's a guy who's just like, this is it. This is my fourth year. I'm, Rome's going. Penix is going. I'm, I'm out no matter what. Um, not saying, like, I think you should hold your breath on, on him returning, but um, I he's one where I could see, like, eh, like if – if someone told him, if he got some feedback that there was some potential that he could improve his stock by using that last year of eligibility, maybe. But then also, and the more I think about it, new quarterback, the receiver core is going to look different. They're losing some, losing some guys. So, yeah, maybe it wouldn't make sense. But I, I do, I, I see him. Um, I'd put him. What would that be? Sixth. Mm-hmm. The we don't know how. NIL is going to impact like this is an honest we don't know how that is going to change the decisions that that guys make and I don't this is my sort of my belief or my hypothesis if we're going to get all scientific method on it would be that I don't think NIL is going to deter guys who are first and maybe even second round but definitely like high-end draft picks are not I don't think are going to stay because of NIL money I think what is going to happen is that you're going to have 
that next tier of players, and I think I think Penix and Roma Dunze are great examples of this, in which you've got the next the next tier of guys who are good players who are going to be drafted. And the question is, do you want to go into the NFL right now, or do you want to come back and play another year of college football? I don't believe that another year of college football is going to significantly help the draft stock of either Roma Dunze or Michael Penix. Like certainly it could alleviate some questions about, about Penix's injury history, but I think there's a limit on how high Michael Penix is going to go. He, he doesn't, he doesn't run as well or like other quarterbacks that have become much more popular there's the same warts that he has right now. The only one that he can eliminate is sort of the questions about his injury history. I don't think he's going to get drafted higher, but kind of the question of, do you want to come back and be big man on campus Heisman trophy candidate and make a decent amount of money? Like, yeah. I, or, or do you want to go and start your NFL career right now? And I could see for a guy saying like, you know what, all things being equal, if I'm going to be picked in pretty much the same spot next year, I'll go have a great a great another season of college football for Roma Dunze. Say he, I think he's got a little more room for upside, but he's not gonna he's not gonna become a faster player. Like that that's he's he's not he's not gonna run a better forty next year than he does this year. He could be more consistent, and maybe he goes from being a third round pick to a to a high second round pick. Maybe he would have gone in the second round anyway. But like kind of that idea of like. Hey, this is pretty fun. And after going through kind of a weird college career, having a chance to come back and and really be spotlighted. So, if you if you fast forward a year for Jalen McMillan, if he's in the same spot that Roma Dunze was in after last season, I can see that that player saying like, "Hey, all things being equal, I'll I'll wait a year because college, it's not just fun, but it's a little more lucrative right now. Like it's a little more. It's not like you're getting rich or like, hey, this is a better financial alternative. But you're like, I don't have to be in as much of a hurry to get to the NFL because the the incentive to go to the NFL draft has increasingly been since they instituted the wage scale. And in 2011, you saw more and more underclassmen declaring. And the reason more and more underclassmen started declaring was because there was less upside to becoming a top 10 pick because the contracts came down. So guys, the the rationale became, if you're going to go to the NFL, you might as well go and get your clock started early and you'll be one year closer to the bigger payday, which is your first free agency. And that is still an incentive there, but now it's kind of offset by, well, if you become a stud in college, like you're making... I don't. I don't want to sit here and put like numbers on it. Like you might be making a million dollars, or you might whatever the 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 people are saying. But you're making some money, and I I think it'll make. I think it's going to change the calculus that guys use. It's also possible he puts up uh, twelve hundred yards and catches ten <laughs> touchdown passes, and he's a he's a second round pick. Yeah, know? it is. That's yeah. like the, the. It's fun to to kind of break this down because the order. Like I think we agree those are the those are the top six, right? And then. Yeah. Some guy, you know, I think Tuli Latuli Nastanoa would have a chance to be drafted. Um, my wild card pick, who's maybe not on the radar right now, but just because of the body type, if he breaks out this year and has a big year, would be Alumu Ale. Um, just because he's he's got the size. Is he uh, still wearing the goofy number? He's uh, he's wearing sixty eight. Yeah, <laughs> he's really slimmed down. Has he? I think DeBoer told me he was down to like. 
318 at one point. <laughs> How high was he? He came in at 368. Damn. <laughs> Damn, that's huge. Yeah, he's listed at 331. I know he was like he was sick at, at, for a time, um, which which might have might have dropped him down even further. But yeah, I mean, he looks like a different guy. He's he's definitely slimmed down. Uh, his former teammates have talked about how like you know Jackson Kirkland and, and Henry Bainavalu and Corey Luciano at Pro Day were saying like yeah you could see the light come on for him toward the end of last year in practice like he'd really caught on to to the the defensive side of things and was starting to be more and more of a problem for the O line blocking him so you know just I'm not saying like I'm I'm projecting him to be like part of that tier of, of those other guys we mentioned but just because of like the body type and the athleticism and the physical tools he has playing the position that they have him at now. He's one where like, if the light really does come on and he takes a big step and is like a, really a player for them in the middle this year. Um, I, I could see him getting a look just because of all those, you know, all, all those things you can't manufacture. And like, they've kind of, they've, we talked about how hard it is to find those big guys on the West coast. Yep. Like they, they kind of manufactured one here, right? Like they recruited, he was a local guy. They recruited to play O-line only, you know, only ever saw him as an O-lineman. He was started at left guard for them. And this new staff got here and was like, eh, it's hard to find D tackles who are built like this guy. Let's, why don't we just move him over there? You know, turn him loose, keep him in 68. We'll disguise him. <laughs> They'll think he's a, he's a, I don't know. A plotter, just, yeah. a, mid, a middle middle lineman, so, somebody somebody who can't play, and all of a sudden 68 is going to be out there wreaking havoc in the middle. I, I, like that as a, I, I like that as a wild card. I like that as a wild card. That is, it's worth a conversation. Uh, I would encourage you to reach out to Ian McFarland if you've got an idea or you're looking for sort of some sales solutions. What Ian does is connects people with ideas and products with other people who are equipped and ready to make those available. So if you're looking to expand your customer base or really start selling, uh, it's worth a conversation. IPMcFarland.com. We've buried the lead here, Danny. What's the lead? The Big Ten has raided the Pac-12. Once again, John Wilner tells us from the San Jose Mercury News, uh, first reported by Football Zebras, but Wilner writes, instead of taking more schools... The Big Ten has seized football officials. Three of the conference's top referees have accepted positions with the Big Ten. So the Pac-12 can bid farewell to Chris Coit, Francisco Villar, and Steve Strimling. Okay. And if you know who those guys are, that's probably not a good thing. It's true. I was able to, I, I was able to nail who I thought VR was because um, he's the one that wears field glasses, so like the shooting goggles or what I think of that look like shooting goggles. I don't like the way he runs. Like I specifically object to the way he trots over to the sidelines to look at the, the replay review. I hate it. Um, best Pac-12 official. Is that kind of like best sushi in Iowa? <laughs> Chris Coit worked the college football playoff last year. So... Well, maybe there was some geographic, like they wanted to be geographically diverse. Well, there is some geography involved in this, it sounds like, because uh, Wilner reports that uh, the departing referees live in Southern California and are expected <laughs> to handle USC and UCLA home games when the schools join the Big Ten in 2024. <laughs> I just, I, I, it's, I like... It's objectively hilarious that USC and UCLA leaving is going to make the officiating worse in the Pac-12. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's true. 
like I legitimately don't know if it's going to get worse. Um, I would like to, I would like to just say like, I hope, uh, uh, Kalashnikov's reaction as the PAC 12 commissioner was to say, um, Oh no, don't take them. Dear God. We, we can't, we can't be losing any of our crack officials. Oh, what are we going to do now? I, uh, yeah, I, I really, it's a, it's a longstanding joke, but I just, I can't get worked up about losing officials in the PAC 12 because I think they're fairly incompetent. What if though, I told you that Michael Mothershed also retired, (laughs) not the Mothershed. We sent him to the Mothershed. No more errant whistles. No more, no more, uh, or not, not errant whistles though. The whistles were, were not errant. It's just that, uh, he, he had a, he had a penchant for, uh, leaving his microphone on yes. and blowing the whistle. Yeah. So at least he's not going to the big 10. <laughs> was like, They're losing a center judge too, by the way. He was like, Hey, I'll come too, guys. They're like, no, no. Why don't you retire? <laughs> we don't want you. Um, yeah, I, I would I I actually think there would have been an argument to be made once Larry Scott was gone to strip it down to the studs in some spots and that would have been one of my suggestions is to strip the officiating down to the studs in the Pac-12 because there are some things that are done that I think are stupid um the replay review and the way that that's handled like the Pac-12 is the Pac-12 obligated to follow the procedures that everybody... Like, you can come up with your own procedures as a conference, right? Yet, like, it ins- it seems that the Pac-12 takes what other conferences are doing and does it worse. Like, that's that's my general impression of the way that they review things. Not to mention, and we don't even get into, like, the things that Mike Leach complained about, which were actually awful like what was the dude's name woody the guy that i think he ended up going to did he come from nike or go to nike was one of those two Uh, i believe he went to nike woody being in the replay center is is like that is such an unconscionable conflict there's just there's no way to to explain that part of like if it's if that is happening you need to strip down all of the protocols and and rebuild it because it's so jacked up. Uh, so Woody Dixon left to be uh, general counsel and corporate secretary secretary of Chegg, C H E G G Inc. Not not Nike. So he he left for a he left for a corporate job. The thing is, if you strip the officiating program down to the studs and like start from scratch, you are going to have worse officials. Because the Pac-12 is not a desirable conference for officials already. And I think the only reason that they had officials as talented as the guys who were leaving for the Big Ten is because they were inherited, right? So, like, if you started over, who is the Pac-12 going to convince to, to come be an official in their conference? Especially without a, a, a pro, you know, two programs in Southern California leaving, you know. So, like, your biggest talent pool of human beings in the footprint is is in the L.A. area in Southern California, right? So, I don't know. I, 
I don't know what the solution is. It sure seems like it's not working with David Coleman in charge of of officiating. Um, it doesn't seem like there's he, he's somebody who's held in super high regard in his profession. So Tony Corrente is is that is that who was there prior to mm-hmm. the dude? Because I would say time. I would say Corrente was someone who it was under his watch that I think you saw the concrete deterioration of it. Um, yeah. I get what you're saying and you're in your right that taking a, and saying like, just burn this place to the ground and rebuild is, is not a, a realistic alternative. But at the same time, I also recognize that the tendency of like, well, we should hold on to it because it's not going to, we don't want it to get any worse is a recipe to not change things for the better. Well, one of the issues that I identified um, by Sibson Consulting did this big review of officiating a few years back, and their conclusion was that it sucks. Oh, my God, what a surprise. <laughs> oh, yeah, you guys are bad at this. Um, but one of the recommendations was like, hey, you're the only power conference that doesn't have a partnership with like a feeder conference, a partnership with, yeah. a, with a, you know, a, a group of five conference. And they still do. So their recommendation was you need to work on that, and they still they still don't. Okay, you've identified the place. Like we need to, we need to get a feeder program. We need to get our our our, our developmental deal sized up. Here's the other thing: the reason that I think officiating, if it has gotten worse, and it's not just sort of my perception, I think it has gotten worse. But I recognize that you're always biased to think it used to be better. They ask officials to do too much. The recipe toward improving officiating, and this is true, I think at pretty much all levels of football is to start reducing the number of things that you're asking the officials to look for. And I know that that goes against the grain of what people want to hear, want to say, but making officials increasingly responsible for targeting, for monitoring for players who have concussions while on the field, if you're going to do those things, bring in other officials to do it. And either have them do it via video or or have extra officials on the field. Because I think that the reason the official the officiating is getting worse is because they're being asked to do so much more. And not only are they being asked to do it, but those things are the things that are having the biggest priority placed on them. Like targeting is the huge role of emphasis. And I I hate targeting. I understand why it's there and I know that it's not going anywhere. And me saying they they should stop calling targeting is 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 an absurd suggestion that won't go anywhere. Okay, bring someone else in to do that. Bring have have a different mechanism in place because there's no reason that that you have to continue with what I think are sort of initiatives or changes that have made the officiating worse. And they already have someone in place to to buzz down if they think they see targeting. Yes. And you know, like in the NFL, they have spotters who are looking for head injuries and stuff. Yeah, why not just put it fully on them? Yes. Have one person, your entire job is on every single play, you're, you're looking for targeting. Because they're not going to miss something that the officials would have seen, right? The Like the officials would have, of course, if you did that, you might have it called on every play. Mm-hmm. Because you might have O-linemen and D-linemen who are like, well... Isn't that targeting? They're bashing their head, you know, he bashes his head into that, but you know, there's, there's not a ball involved. So we just don't care about that. Right. Like 
you know, player safety and head injuries only matter on uh, on plays where somebody's either just threw a football or is about to catch a football or is running with a football. And I would say this. This is going to be a, a wildly unpopular sentiment, but I think it's realistic. Leagues and conferences are concerned about people seeing head injuries suffered like on TV. Like that's that's really the huge emphasis. There, there's a grain of like well-intentioned, we want to protect players from head injuries. But from a strategic or PR standpoint, what they're trying to eliminate is the consequence-free kill shot that everybody sees in their living room. Which is not a bad thing to eliminate. Like I'm not I'm not gonna sit here and say, like, oh, I, I like football violent and I want my players' eggs scrambled, like that sort of but it is like at the root of that initiative is trying to combat that perception of and if you're gonna do that, have the person judge it based on what they see on TV. Like if that's if if that's asking an official who for 25 or 30 years was calling the game a certain way and saying, okay, you've got to keep doing that. But now here's the most important thing you have to watch is when guys get hit in the head, which you're like, that happens every freaking play. Um, I think they do a pretty good job of, of sorting through it. Now it's certainly better than when it first started. I just think it's an impossible task. I, and I think it's making their decision-making and their attention to other things. It's, it's having a negative impact on those. Really, what you mostly just want to see—you don't want to see the officials run to the sidelines anymore, it's, right? No, I. Why? Why do they do that? That makes no sense. It's where the stuff is? No, but like that's why is that guy? That it makes no sense to have the referee jog to the sideline to watch a replay on a smaller screen. It makes no sense to have that guy have anything to do with replay. Yeah, yeah. There, I, there's a very strong argument to be made for taking all that stuff off of the the plate of the game. Just, officials. just have the dude in the in the big control room do it, and just don't let Woody Dixon in there. Are there robot opportunities here? <laughs> like, I am nothing a, quite like a strike zone, but I am I am 100 percent against robot referees in all their forms. <laughs> no, that's so, not true. I like that. No, that's. Uh, I was going to say I like the lines the call in tennis being automated, but that's not even true either because I miss when the players would go nuts at the, at the, at the chair over. Like, <laughs> it was clearly in. What are you watching? Um, if you think that the if you think the officials take over the game now, just wait till they just wait till we get our robot refs in there. <laughs> Not really take over. I, I do think there's got to be there's got to be something something to be done about spotting the ball yeah and did you make the line to gain i oh, maybe it's just because i'm i'm looking for it but i swear i saw so many terrible ball spots last year this would be this would be another one where i have an unpopular or what i feel is an unpopular opinion you like the human error i do <laughs> See, i, I kind of get that i kind of get that i actually would argue that the imprecision of the human eye being counted on to do that is balanced out by the fact that they see it how it looked as opposed to logistically precise how it happened. That I think that their their eyeball guesstimate at how far the ball got is actually a better representation, is more accurate, 
even if it's not specific. And the the com- the comparison that I would make is, I think replay has made stolen bases in baseball. It's a little different now this year because the bases are bigger. Replay in baseball has made things more technically correct when it comes to players sliding into bags and plays at second base and third base and even home plate. But it's actually, in my mind, made it less accurate because some things that technically happen should never be called. If if the if the base runner beats the throw and gets his hand onto the bag and in the process of popping up from the slide becomes disconnected from the base for a fraction of a second, at which point the player who caught the ball is holding the ball against him, he's now called out when it's like, no, that guy was safe. Yeah, he came yeah. off it for a second, but that's that's not he's really safe. We all know he's safe, but they're like, well, but technically by the letter of the law, like replay has made that more technically accurate, but less accurate. See, I that's funny that that's the comparison. It's a good comparison. But the one that came to mind for me is in basketball, I'm holding the ball and you swipe at it and swipe it out of bounds and it lands out of bounds and everybody watching can see you swipe the ball. It's off you. It's my ball. But if we look at the replay on the way down, that ball, if you look really closely in super slow motion, actually the very last thing it touched was the tip of my pinky. Even though you swipe down to cause it to fall out of my hands, you removed your hand and it just bled off of my pinky onto the baseline. So it's actually your ball where it's yeah. like, no, <laughs> no, nobody wants it to be. The, the the defensive team's ball in that instance like you made a play on the ball to cause it to go out of bounds yes it should it should stay with the the team that had the ball 100 percent agree with you so maybe the ball spots in football fall in that category that's fair i don't know um are you ready for my 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 piece of doctored audio oh yes <laughs> we talked last week about babies on planes right <laughs> oh, i know what this is <laughs> Amazingly, like we taught, we recorded that before this, this viral <laughs> we clip went everywhere. <laughs> and you had made the point that you feel immediate, intense compassion for the parent of the of the crying child. And I agree with you. And I would say, like, there are actually points when there is a screaming baby on a flight. I would prefer it be next to me than at the other end of the plane because I know I'm not going to be a jerk to that parent. Like I know as as uncomfortable as I might get, like I know sort of my basic humanity that it's going to be, you're not going to find someone who is more charitable in their sort of patience for the screaming child than I'm going to be there. And so I'm willing to take that for the team. <laughs> We found it's it's in Florida. It's in a route, southwest route to Florida, right? It, yeah, in route to Florida because he declares at one point that we're not in Florida yet. You can't do whatever you want to do. Um, it's it's the most impatient or angry person I've ever heard about a baby crying. Does that sound does that does that sound about accurate? Yes, this gentleman does not share our opinion <laughs> on the subject. Let's be rational. Hold on, hold on. You want to be rational? No, 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 no. Don't tell me what the f*** I Let's be rational. We are in, we are in a f- 
tin can with a baby in a goddamn echo chamber, and you want to talk to me about being Okay. Okay, because you're, you're yelling. So That's is the baby. baby. Okay, so you're a man. Did that motherfucker pay extra to you? Okay, no. So, so, oh, oh, you would shut up. No. <laughs> start the <laughs> You were you were sitting there watching that motherfucker baby cry for forty five. Okay. 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 Didn't have nothing to do with that. He's an asshole. No, it's okay. Okay. He's an asshole. Okay. It's okay. We'll have him. I'm sorry. Don't hurt me. I'm sorry. I'm tripping. So, there's a good debate to be had over the, the power ranking of funny or remarkable things in this clip. Um, I think... I, I, I think that a grown man referring to a baby in any context as that mother (laughs) (laughs) gotta be number one (laughs) did that mf -er pay extra to yell (laughs) this is at once like truly reprehensible behavior and also one of the funniest things I've ever seen (laughs) So like it's objectively funny. It just is. Oh, it's hilarious. The asking if he he paid extra. I think that's my second favorite. I think my first favorite. And he goes, sir, you're yelling. And he goes, so is the baby. baby. (laughs) Not heard in that clip was another. And I know you like this too. The uh, we're not in Florida yet. You can't. (laughs) You can't just do whatever the F you want to do. <laughs> it's, it's, but the flight attendant tries to appeal to his rational side where he says, like, basically, sir, you're a man. <laughs> he goes, I don't care. That baby's yelling. <laughs> it says, at some point, another passenger says something about it. And it goes, <laughs> Says, you sat there while that baby was screaming for 45 minutes talking about something that has nothing to do with nothing <laughs> i uh if i were that child's parent i i don't know how i would have reacted to the gentleman's reaction i actually think i don't think they had to do anything because i think the rest of the passengers were ba- basically turned on him i i, I would imagine I think there was like a general uproar. Like, I don't think anybody had his side. And at the end, the woman that he's traveling with, I don't know if they were married or but it appeared that they were a couple. She says to him, she says, you're triggered. He goes, I'm triggered. F that. <laughs> do, 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 do you want to hear it again? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Play it again. Let's be rational. Hold on, hold on. You want to be rational? No, 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 no. Don't tell me what you're doing. Let's be rational. We are in a tin can with a baby in a goddamn echo chamber, and you want to talk to me about being okay? Okay, because you're yelling. So is the baby. So is the baby. Did that motherfucker pay extra to you? Okay, no. You would shut up. I don't give a f- <laughs> you, were, you were sitting there watching that mother f- baby cry for 45 okay. 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 
nothing to do okay. with nothing. <laughs> Lower that baby's voice. Lower that. That's another one. Lower that baby's voice. Lower, sir, lower your voice. Lower that baby's voice. <laughs> Can you imagine cursing? I, it's a baby. The, <laughs> he drops, what, 10, 15 F-bombs about a baby. The lightning fast comebacks. To the to what he was being told <laughs> by the the flight crew were just incredible. <laughs> Lower that baby's voice. Lower that baby's voice. <laughs> <laughs> so is the baby. <laughs> uh, you know that the... bit, that reminds me. Um, it's a great day to subscribe to onmotlake.com, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it absolutely is. Uh, for the most part, I think, for the most part, I think cell phones have been a a net negative on, on society. Like I think they've, I think they've had a a harmful effect on our attention spans. I also think like the tendency to document everything is, is annoying. Like there's a lot of, so I don't want to make it seem like this is the carbon offset from that, but there are moments that you get pure human hilarity. (laughs) You would, you would. There's nobody that would be able to write something that funny. <laughs> no, uh, it did remind me a little. Do you watch? Uh, um, I think you should leave. No, with Tim. Oh my, you gotta check it out. It's the the the. It's uh, Tim Robinson's sketch show. It's on Netflix. Um, Tim Robinson. I think he used to be a writer for SNL. Um, it's the humor is not for everybody. It's very much my kind of humor. Just absolutely hilarious. Um, and there was a skit where a guy who's, who's older, he sits down next to, you know, a, 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 a young couple, right? Like mid thirties couples, you know, gr- grown, grown people. And, uh, the, the premise of the skit is that this guy that, that he sat next to, who's the the man in the couple, um, he once shared a flight with when that guy was a baby and he screamed and cried the whole time as a baby. So now this guy's going to have his vengeance by sitting next to him <laughs> and screaming in his ear the whole flight, but he gets moved back to the, it, it ends up, it's not actually his seat and they make him move. So he just goes to the back of the plane and proceeds to just like yell and scream, but the guy puts on his headphones and can't hear him. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, it's a lot funnier when I just explain it out than watching it. It's pretty good. Most most I didn't I didn't see that I didn't see the punchline coming until you said that the the guy had the guy had screamed and cried as an infant. And then I was like, but then there was the twist if he got sent to the back and then became a crying baby himself that no one could hear. Yeah, true genius. Tim yeah. Robinson's also in one of my favorite SNL skits uh, with Jason Sudeikis, where they're um, I think Vince Vaughn was the was the host and Vince Vaughn's playing like. A, an executive um at a, and and they're they're playing uh i think is it round ball rock the nba on nbc theme and uh the idea was that john tesh who wrote that yes i believe that's correct so the idea is that uh jason sudeikis is is the main guy who wrote the song and he's got the music he's playing the keyboard and then tim robinson is singing lyrics to it that are just like very 
simplistic basketball stuff over there. It's hilarious. And uh, the, the joke is that they can't believe that they would want the song without the lyrics. And they're just like <laughs> taken aback by it. Also very funny. Uh, this is a Tim Robinson podcast now. It certainly, certainly could become one. That's all I've got. Gonna be a quiet draft first day of the draft. It will for everybody except the Seahawks. Yeah, Seahawks got two picks up there. Actually, very interesting for the Seahawks. I think I want him to take Anthony Richardson. I think they're going to take Jalen Carter. I hope they don't trade back. Like I'd like the I'd like to see what Pete Carroll does with Anthony Richardson. I think that'd be fascinating. I think Jalen Carter's the best pick. If they pass on Carter and he's there and pick somebody other than Richardson, I'm going to be pretty disappointed. You said it as a joke, but uh, I would like to see them take Bijan Robinson and uh, pair him in a single wing offense with Kenneth Walker. I can't. I can't get. I, I'm kidding. <laughs> the, I mean, he's a freaking awesome player. Whoever gets him is getting a generational running back. But the running, you can't take a running back that high. No. And it. No, I know. It, it's driven me nuts about Seattle's tendency to do that. If they hadn't drafted Rashad Penny in the first round and Kenneth Walker in the second round and Kristen Michael in the second round, I might be able to get on board with the idea. But they've they've used up they've used up all their running back chips and then some. Like you don't Kenneth get to Walker take was the a great pick. Okay. Yes, so far I think, but that came on the heels of two busts. Is it fair to call him a bust? Like Rashad Penny's just injured. Kristen Michael was definitely a bust. Like you've you've done it. You've done it too much. Like you don't get to do more of that. Like you've already you've already overshot your your running back quota, and you don't get to come in. If they hadn't used up any of that, and they were like, he's really good, and we love him, and be like, okay, fine. He better be awesome. He better be Marshall Falk. Yeah. Well, see, Simba's fired up too. Yeah. Take a lineman. <laughs> <laughs> Subscribe to onmontlake.com. Give us a rating, a five-star rating, and review us. 74 people. There we go. Cannot be wrong. It is still 174. Just making sure. Let's pump it up. Yeah. Let's get to 175, maybe 176. You know, if I see 177, feel pretty good about things. Say who? Say pod. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk to you next week.